Hey, welcome back to Giovanni Antrioli's Movies and More, where I talk about movies and more. You'd be, I would say you'd be shocked how many times I tried to do that intro, but you know what? Nah, because I say it every week. I'm always like, it took me like five times to do this intro, right? Actually, this time, it wasn't that I was like messing up. It was more that I was just trying to do really stupid stuff. Like at one point, I just straight up like... Like, put my mouth over the microphone, like I was eating it, and, uh, yeah, I just, like, blew on the microphone, (laughs) just to see what, you know, like, what would that sound like? Really loud. Uh, and then, and then I put background music on it. Uh, In case you're wondering what background music, that's gonna kick in right now. And, uh, I mean, it won't play for too long. Just to give you a sense of what this amazing audio was like. Listen, if you thought that I was the real deal in terms of podcasting at all, I hope that this episode has completely diminished any respect you had for me as a legitimate podcaster. Anyway, uh, let's, let's get into it, yeah? What do you think? Let's get into it. Creed. Yo, actually, okay, so I just got finished editing that little segment that had the background music, and I didn't realize that what I have just edited was kind of low-key fire. I mean, even though I know you won't, you should definitely let me know what you thought about it, because, I mean, I thought it actually sounded pretty good, kind of professional, kind of cool, like, I mean, certainly it was kind of jarring, but at a certain point, I eased into it, I thought it was a kind of cool segue. Maybe in the future, I could employ it to make a... I don't know, more professional-sounding podcast. I mean, or not, I don't know. To be fair, this entire thing was built on unprofessionalism. It was... Started on uh, me saying, uh, to hell with it, let's just randomly start a podcast, and that's exactly what I did. So, hey, here we are. All right, let's go. Creed 1 is fantastic. I want to see this movie in the theaters with my dad. Because it came out Thanksgiving, uh, like November, I don't know, it wasn't exactly Thanksgiving, but it was pretty close. It was November of 2015, and that was a magical year, let me tell you. I wasn't super into Star Wars, but the buzz uh, of, of it in school uh, was enough to, for like at least a year, actually make me be into Star Wars, which is a really tough feat, and I mean... After about that year, I'm much more mellow on Star Wars, but for a while I was into it, just kind of feeding off the energy of the school and then actually being inspired to watch it and stuff. Uh, But something that I felt like was more personal to me, something that maybe not all the people at school were talking about, but that um, I heard being discussed very frequently within like the community of film was Creed. 
a lot of podcasters were talking about it. And, you know, it's this new Rocky movie. It's a new era. This movie's fantastic. Ryan Coogler, oh my god. And then I was reading Entertainment Weekly at the time, which I don't really read that anymore. And I remember a lot of articles ranking it among the best films of the year. You know, all this stuff. It was It was really publicized, and it was with good reason. This movie was, and still is, fantastic. But I wanted to preface it by saying that I went to see it with my dad because that's something that's actually pretty important to these movies. I know I talked about uh, in one of the two previous episodes about the Rocky movies how this is a pretty important film series to my family as a whole and how this is something that I associate with my dad. That, stuff like Karate Kid, the first Spider-Man movie, um, just a handful of movies that I watched uh, growing up and still do that are big things for my dad. The, this is this is one of them. And obviously I was, uh, you know, I wasn't super young when we went to see that, but it was something that we were like, oh, well, yeah, we got to go see Creed 2 in the theater and stuff. So, so that was really fun. And then coming all the way back around to watching them with him in the living room, you know, again, the whole family and stuff, that was really fun. So I, I just thought that was something cool that I could throw in there because that's a big part of uh, why these movies or, or, or how these movies resonate with me. So let's get into it, though. Uh, this movie, I think one of the best things that it does is from the get-go, uh, their, the relationship between Adonis and Bianca is very well fleshed out and very well performed. I I really buy into this immediately, and it's so charming. Like, I just had this dopey smile on my face, as like, through the whole first movie, especially. Um, the second movie's not quite as, as fun in terms of their relationship. It's a little more, you know, hardships. They're past the honeymoon stage and, and everything, all that. But, but yeah, it just makes me smile. I mean, it's just so charming and fun to watch, and they have fantastic chemistry. And... They got to where Rocky Two got, but they got they got it the first time, and I think that's elemental uh, to these to these movies' success. To be fair, this does still have that cl- that classic problem of, and this is something I I kind of lament the fact that I didn't touch on uh, before in the in the two previous Rocky movie episodes, but uh, the the girlfriends, the women in these movies really don't have. Uh, like a purpose really beyond supporting the protagonist it's I mean Bianca's certainly better she's certainly better than um Adrian Adrian does have some of the rough stuff with her home life and everything but that's also tied into Polly that's sort of just those two characters being intertwined and I think that that's just because of the nature of how that's presented, it doesn't really ring as, you know, as independent for her, like an independent struggle of Rocky, because it's so closely tied to him. Whereas before Adonis even enters the picture, we can tell that Bianca has been slowly growing her singing career and been dealing with uh, progressive hearing loss and the hardships that come with that. Like, she's clearly got her own fully fleshed out life before he enters it. And I think that's really cool. However, the fact remains that she still does pretty much unconditionally support him, regardless of 
you know, what, what he chooses to do. And it's, I don't, I'm not obviously trying to be PC or offended on behalf of all women. This didn't offend me or anything. I don't think it's, it's so stilted in terms of like progression. Like, I don't, I don't think it's, it's that bad, but I do think it would be interesting to have something other than, you know, like, well, I don't want you to fight, but I mean, if you're going to fight, well, then I'll be there to support you. And I get it, and I understand that that's obviously the right thing to do. Any person would hopefully do that. They'd be like, I don't agree with what you're doing, but I will support you. But at the same time, it would be interesting to just one time divert from that formula. But regardless, I think that she she does have a lot more going on. And the performance is really good and really charismatic. And I do love that she has her own dreams, that she makes him show up for her, too. That it's not just about him all the time. You know, he has to make the effort to to go to her shows and to pay attention to what's going on with her. And after his fights and his training and all this stuff, you still see him on a couple of different occasions throughout both these movies at, like, whatever club she's performing at in the audience, you know, there just to support her and everything, and I think that's really cool, and even the way she gets mad at him after he, uh, starts a fight at her, um, at one of her performances before she goes out, I think that was really cool, too, that was something that I think was really well done, so, yeah, overall, these, this relationship is really good, and because it's, a pretty big driving force through both of these movies. I thought it would be um, imperative to touch on it, you know, up top. But but there are some things that that maybe could have been done better. But but I think it's still it's still uh, really really good and really fun. And I think this is definitely my favorite relationship of all of the ones in the Rocky movies. Like not even romantic. I mean, like actually, just relationship. between two people, like, between two characters. This is probably my favorite. Uh, but speaking of, of the Rocky movies and Rocky characters and relationships and whatever, we got, um, we got a mentor-mentee situation with Rocky and Adonis in this movie. Uh, I think that was also really, really well done. And I think that it's interesting to see... I I remember I harped on this point a lot in my discussion of Rocky V, but saying about how stuff like this was done so much better in Creed, well, I mean, here you go. This is done a lot better in Creed. The the older fighter taking on a young protege, that just works better in this movie. And I really, really like it just their their dynamic and and the way that Rocky is very hesitant to take on this random kid that shows up to him and I actually was surprised by that I didn't realize how kind of random it is I mean it's not random there is sort of a quasi familial tie between them but at the same time I was surprised that it was just he just walked into the restaurant and how like I was surprised how similar it is to how Tommy just sort of enters the story. I guess the difference here being that we're following Adonis this whole time, and so we understand kind of his motivation to go see Rocky, whereas if we're following Rocky this whole time, when this random 
kid just enters and says, I'm from Oklahoma and I want to train. I'll do my best. It seems more random. So I guess that's maybe part of the difference here and why it's done so much better in Creed. Uh, The only thing, though, about all of this... So actually, I want to say... I think everything from... So, isolated on its own, I think the opening scene of Creed is fantastic. Like, the visual style to this, the that tracking shot from... Because I don't think it cuts until you're actually in the fight and you're cutting between Creed and the other kid punching each other. That Just that tracking shot uh, through the hallway. There's a few really good tracking shots in in this movie. There's one down a stairwell, which I was... I was amazed at how they did that. Like, it almost seemed like a crane shot, but however it went, you would have had to anchor it so that it stays out of the frame. So I'm assuming that it had to be a crane, but it was, I don't know, it was so cool. Just like, you just put that in the stairwell. Like, you didn't have to do that, but certain artsy touches like that, I think, keep us more visually interesting. So yeah, that's one of the great things about this opening scene. But just the way you learn so much about Adonis as a character and his tendency to anger and his want to fight and how he feels kind of lost without a father. I liked all of that and I thought that was done really well without being too obligatory in what it was trying to do. And this movie, maybe more so than the second one, does keep very consistent with that character. This is still a very, um, a very angry and and quick to fight character, and I liked that they remember he has an attitude. There's not really a part of this movie where they soften him or forget about that. You know, he's still beating up random people because they said the wrong thing to him later in the movie. So I liked all of that. But from that scene, from the title card drop, until uh, he goes and knocks on her door, like the first night that he's moved into Philly... I think that that's pretty average. Like, I don't actually really like that. Uh, and I, I would say that's that's probably the whole first act. Which, it sucks to say that, but... I don't know. I think this is... This kind of has a rough first, first act. And I was worried, initially, that... Oh no, does this maybe not hold up to, like, being revisited? Like, was I maybe so clouded by... You know, the... Like, all the the hubbub about... The hubbub? What am I, 40? Um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Uh, all the excitement about a really new, really good Rocky movie. Uh, and all the, the press attention it was getting. And, you know, how much I loved it. And how much my dad loved it and everything. That maybe... I had forgotten certain certain elements or did, you know, my taste evolve a little bit. Uh and I I think it could have been a bit of a bit of all of those things for sure. And and I was really worried that that it might not you know hold up to being rewatched, but but no. Uh, from pretty much everything after he knocks on her door all the way until the end of the movie. I that all that stuff is fantastic. And I think part of this might not have been, you know, I mean, part of it might have been some of those factors that I just listed off, but 
I think another part of it is watching all the other, the other six prior to that in such a rapid succession. I mean, you start to notice and pick up on the tropes and cliches that these movies keep repeating that it's, you know, even in the best examples of them, when they keep going back to that particular well, it's sort of like, oh my god, are you kidding me again? But that's, you know, if you have more time in between them to kind of let them sit and and kind of sift through what you liked and what you didn't like, it becomes a little less apparent, I think. So that might have also been a, a pretty important factor to how I felt about the first act of this movie. But I think everything after after he meets Bianca, it it gets a lot better, and so I was I was talking about the visual flair of this movie before. Uh, this is Ryan Coogler, uh, who directed this movie. He directed Fruitvale Station as well, which I have never seen, but I definitely would like to. That um that's also Michael B. Jordan. It's a social drama. I think about a shooting. I think it's based on a true story. I'm not entirely sure. Don't quote me on any of that. But especially after rewatching this movie, I'm, I definitely have a renewed interest in him as a filmmaker. Uh, and he also made Black Panther, which I think lacks some of the visual flair that this movie has. Like Certainly there are some very interesting production design uh qualities of that movie and it's got a great score and just the look and feel of it is so otherworldly and cool and it deserves every bit of praise that it got but at the same time I think a large part of that is not necessarily due to him and that's not a knock against him I'm just saying that I think once you move out of doing uh more like movies on the fringe of the studio system where you have a lot more control over what you want to make them into you, you know it's more your vision and so you move into a massive conglomerate like like marvel studios and disney and that kind of thing i think you just inherently lose some of that that visual style and, and flair that made you so unique in the first place and you just kind of fall into the machine so it was really refreshing to go back and see one of his earlier movies where there still is very unique stuff like um i mentioned the tracking shot in the beginning and there's one down a stairwell and then also there's uh the one of the the first big fight where he fights that weird dude that kind of looks like a monkey uh and has some pretty bad neck tattoos uh there's that whole tracking shot what else oh there's a Really good shot when he gets knocked down when he's fighting uh, Danny the Wheeler in the gym and the camera falls with him. That was really good. That was almost like the reverse of what I talked about in The Outsiders where the camera kind of sits up as Ralph Macchio sits up. It was like the reverse of that and it was really jarring and really sold the impact of that fall. That was really cool. And then you get the stats, which I liked. I like the readout, the colorful readout of, you know, knock knockouts, wins, losses, whatever, how much they weigh, what their nickname is, all that stuff. That was really cool. And I think that that unique thing, since it comes in like from the first fight that we see him participate in, I think it's a lot less jarring than some of the stuff in Balboa, the more overtly visually stylistic elements because they only come in at the very end and that sort of took me out of the 
final fight because all of a sudden, oh, it's all black and white with just these splashes of color and and stuff like that. And I don't know, it was just kind of weird. So I like that in this, it's not something like you get the first stats whenever it's the final fight. I like that that's something that's consistent throughout the whole film. That's a small thing, but I just liked it. Um, Let's see what else. I touched on how I love that Adonis is kept a very uh, a very angry and yeah, kind of unsure of himself character. And I, and I do really like that. And I like the fact that uh, a lot of the f- people that he comes up against in his life are telling him that he really should stop pursuing his dreams of becoming a fighter because that's just not, you know, a good path. I mean, look what it did to his father and everything. And I like how he's got this crazy legacy on his shoulders that it almost seems impossible to live up to and how he's trying to make his own name and the moment at the end when he gets the package from his mom and it's the the creed shorts but it's creed on one side johnson on the other at first i thought they totally biffed that moment that it was something like um i'm so sorry but it was something like the you need to be your own hero moment in Spider-Man Far From Home, and then he turns around and they start blasting ACDC like they did in the first Iron Man movie. So you get totally conflicting messages. So it's like, make your own legacy by wearing the same shorts that your father wore. But I like that it's bringing together those two worlds of being Adonis Creed and Adonis Johnson. That was really cool, and that was a really satisfying moment. I think the the second movie kind of drops that, and kind of forgets about the Johnson part of Creed, because certainly it's, if you had any sort of relation in terms of bloodline to a fighter or any sort of public figure that important, you would definitely feel the pressure to live up to that, and you would definitely probably idolize them to a crazy degree. But I think something that especially the second film forgets, like when they go and visit his uh, his grade, his grade, my bad, oof, my grade's dead too right now, anyway, um, (laughs) when they go visit Apollo's grave, that's what I meant to say, that's how English works, um, I was sort of like, that's kind of weird, he's like, this is pop-pop and all that stuff, and I was like, I mean, it's cool, and it definitely works thematically, because just the villain of two is more, important to the creed name than the villain of one but at the same time i mean he never knew him and they build it up like he did and so at that point it would almost be stronger if it was one of the kids that you actually see in the house which is something i thought was weird that they never touch on that um that there were kids in apollo's house in the first and second rocky like i don't know i, I don't know it's kind of weird that's not even acknowledged that there are other kids of Apollos. But, uh, but I mean, it, it's kind of beside the point. It's That's more of a nitpick than anything. But then at the same time, I don't think it would be stronger if it was, you know. I don't know. It's weird. I'm kind of of two minds about it. Because I think what they did and the interesting thematic things that they tapped into with him searching for some sort of father figure and not really having one, finding one in Rocky, but also knowing that Rocky had 
such a close connection to his actual father and then having these two impossible legacies that you can't really uh reconcile you know and uh, live up to i don't know that's very interesting thematically but then all the while you still know that most people are only going to see you as like oh creed's secret child and everything and so you have to try to make a concerted effort to forge your own path and stand out besides just being of a particular important lineage. That's really interesting. But then at the same time, you do kind of get that weird situation where it's like, oh, the secret son you never knew he had. So I don't know. It was kind of weird. And I think it just gets kind of murky in the second movie. But at the same time, it is more of a nitpick than a really legitimate problem with the film. I think overall, his connection to his dad really works, and it's a good way of continuing this franchise forward by kind of going into the future, kind of instead of being stuck on the pa- in like in the past. Your if if a theme of your movie is forging your own legacy and and making something new, then inherently, if your movie's done well, which this movie is, to a certain degree, you're also moving the franchise forward in an interesting way. So I like that a lot. Uh, Another thing I love about this movie is that Rocky is sick. That whole element, him training in the hospital, him wanting to refuse treatment, everything, all the stuff that's tied in, in, in that, that is all really, really awesome. And I love the fact that that is a part of this movie. Something that, and I think I've touched on this on the podcast before, but something that, that to me is essential for any mentor-mentee relationship is that the mentor has to help the mentee as much as the mentee has to help the mentor. They both need to teach each other something because that, I think, is just more interesting dramatically, and that makes the relationship all the more rich because of it, and that's something that this movie absolutely nails, and something that I think in a lot of similar movies uh, kind of miss, and so that's really makes me appreciate the fact that through Rocky, he's kind of learning how to, to cope with these, with these great expectations, and he's learning a lot about fighting, and, and kind of about life, and then at the same time, he's giving Rocky something to live for, and giving him reason to live again, helping him fight through hard times too, which is something that he's kind of lost after all this time, all that was fantastic, and, I love the fact that it's a part of this movie. Whoever had that idea, fantastic idea. I mean, just outstanding. That's one of the best parts of this movie. So, I've talked about this movie a lot, a lot uh, so far. And I've talked a little bit about the second movie. But I think I'd like to kind of transition into a review of the second movie. Now, I have a little less to say about this one. Uh, It's a good movie. It really is a good movie. But I don't think it's a great movie. It's certainly not as good as... Creed, uh, Creed 1 is, but it is still very well made. There's less interesting visual flair to this movie. There's, I'm pretty sure they replicate the scene where, uh, he gets knocked down and the camera falls with him, but that's something that kind of, I don't know, you know, you're, you're keeping the visual style, but not really inventing one of your own, but that's okay, because I don't think that's the only unique thing that this movie does. It drops the stats readout, which, which is fine. Uh, this isn't really 
doesn't really fit for this movie, so that's okay. Um, but they, the, well, I don't know. There's not as many examples to highlight, uh, but there are two standouts for me. So one of them was there's a scene in the nightclub. Adonis is very angry at this point, uh, which is rep- represented by he is in a red coat and he is standing in red lighting. And then the kind of fixer guy or whatever this guy is who's trying to arrange this fight, he is being very calm and cool. He's in a blue suit in blue lighting. That was just cool. And the way they're split in the frame, that's a pretty good example of visual storytelling. And it was something that stood out to me. Uh, And then another one that's a little more overt uh, is when he's going underwater and the audio kind of comes muffled in tune with when he goes underwater and comes back up and then uh, the audio becomes clear again. It's cool. It's kind of weird because, you know, it doesn't, it's not really two scenes that are in tandem. Like he's not there or like they're not talking while he's, you know, they're not at the side of the pool while he's in the pool or something. They're in a totally different location. But again, that's kind of nitpicky and it is an interesting idea. And I think, you know, all things considered, it works pretty well in this movie. Uh, Something I didn't touch on in the first movie is that once again, we continue a trend of fascinatingly unripped uh, boxers. Listen, I understand that not every villain has to be physically imposing, and I like that. Some villains can be mentally imposing. Some villains don't even have to exist. They can be a ghost, and you can never see them. Like, whatever. You know, it doesn't... It, it depends on what story you're telling, though. That's the important part. Obviously, you probably wouldn't put, like... Um, uh, Dr. Evil in a ghost story or a ghost in uh, Austin Powers. You know, that's, that's those are two different things. I don't know why that was the example I chose. I guess I was just thinking of physically unimposing villains and that was the first one I thought of for some reason. I don't know. Listen, I'm very sick and I'm very sick. That's also not true. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm so sorry. I've just been rambling on about Rocky for so long. It's it's messing with my brain a little bit, I think. I think I really, really need to move on to a new topic or a series of films. But, um, no, I am a little under the weather, actually, in case you couldn't tell. My voice is a little, it's a little raspy, a little worse for wear today. But I guess so is my brain, clearly. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I'm sorry. I don't think I really needed the background music thing to convince you I'm not a good podcaster. This should do the trick. Um, where was I? I totally lost. Oh, right. Okay. So, anyway, depends on the story you're telling. Uh, this is supposed to be the heavyweight champion of the world, the undefeated mountain of manliness that Michael B. Jordan, regardless of how hard he tries, just can't win against. And I think this guy is ridiculous, and he looks like, uh, who does he look like? I don't know. He looks like that dad that thinks he's more buff than he is. He thinks he's more buff and more cool, and so every time when the kids want to go to the pool, he's like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it, honey. You can stay home. I can take the kids. And then as soon as they get to the pool, he's so excited because he can just show off his awesome bod and everything, and everyone ever is like, you look ridiculous, and you're not actually that fit. Whoever told you you were fit 
was clearly just trying to make you feel better, okay? This dude, okay, listen, at least the guy before was kind of slender. I mean, he had a bit of a dad bod. He wasn't super ripped. But, like, I sort of bought him. Like, I sort of bought him as a, as a, you know, legitimate fighter. This guy, I don't buy this at all. Dude, old Rocky could kick this guy's ass 10,000 times. He's got, like, straight-up man boobs, okay? Listen, see, listen. There's gotta be some degree of definition to this dude. This guy is also one of those guys that definitely has, like, a little bit of fat under, like, right at the under end of his abs. So he always pulls his pants up too high on his waist. This dude, I mean, listen, that's probably some Irish thing or something that whatever kilt he's wearing, like, maybe it's supposed to be worn like that. But also, I think it's being worn like that because this guy really isn't that ripped. So he's covering up his lack of abs with a dumb-looking kilt. Listen, I'm sorry. It seems like I'm really laying into this guy. And, I mean, I am. But he totally deserves it. This is ridiculous. I mean, it's cool if you want to cast, you know, a different-looking fighter or something. But, like, they're like, this guy's fast. He's got speed. I'm like, this dude just seems like some annoying rich prick. Like, this guy seems like less ripped Jake Paul. He's, like, super showy and annoying, and he wants to fight people that he clearly couldn't take. And, like, I I don't believe that this guy is the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world. I think this guy is the always defeated featherweight champion of nothing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Mm, I hope this guy isn't listening to this, because I just definitely crippled him. Listen, man, it's not your fault. They just should have either trained you or or picked someone else. Oh, my God. Ridiculous. Anyway, l- listen, okay, and you're probably thinking, you're, you're just nitpicking. That's not really a bad thing. Okay, yeah, it's not, but it takes all the tension away when, like, the whole time... I'm thinking at the end of this fight, there is no way Michael B. Jordan does not beat the crap out of this guy. Seriously, there is no way this guy wins. And it's one of those things where it's like, it was a very close decision. And he lost the fight, but won the night. And I'm like, but that's, but, but, but no, like, there is no way this guy wins. There's no way. It's crazy. He's just so unimposing, especially compared to Michael B. freaking Jordan. <laughs> Just saying, okay? If you're making a boxing movie, I want to be worried that the protagonist might actually lose against the antagonist. But I can't do that when he's Jacob's flab fat dad from down the street who who wears a kilt to the pool. Listen, I'm mixing my metaphors at this point, but I think you get the point. I clearly really don't like this guy. And I don't like, um, I don't like Drago's son either, but that's just because he's a prick. I actually think he's giving a really good performance, and despite the fact that he doesn't really talk or do much, you know, besides look intimidating, and there's a degree of vulnerability to him that I think is really well played, and it's subtle enough that it's not like, oh, I see what they're doing there, because trauma and family problems, but at the same time... It's, it's like it's underplayed enough that you don't feel that way, but at the same time, it conveys everything it needs to in an understated way. I like that. I think that was really cool. And also, this guy's like seven feet tall and like 
350 pounds of lean, mean, unfiltered muscle. He's, like, probably 2% body fat or some craziness. This guy is, like, super ripped. And actually, it seems like it should be reversed. Like, this guy should have kicked Michael B. Jordan's ass in the first movie. But, like, not totally, obviously, because he's got to lose the fight but win the night. And then it should have been this idiot who comes out at the in the second movie because... Um, because I definitely buy that the guy from the first movie is a family disappointment. Okay. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I really hope this guy never listens to this. I mean, I know he won't, but like, maybe, maybe, you don't know. Um, no, what was I saying? I don't know. He's just a lot more physically imposing, and I really like that. It seems like it's a legitimate challenge. You feel the impact of his hits. It You really buy it the first time when he beats the shit out of him. Um, and then it becomes all the more rewarding and inspiring whenever they go out to, like, the desert, uh, and he's doing his super intense, unorthodox training method. Uh, that was That was really, really cool, and I liked that a lot, and it made it so much more impactful when he does finally win. And I love that. And I love the the reconciliation uh between him and his dad and how they're finally, you know, they're they're still doing the same workouts and stuff together, but it's with a degree of of a little more levity, you know, they're finally they're done um giving in to what everyone else says and he's just kind of loving him as a son that was really cool and it's a small moment and it certainly it wasn't built up like expertly or anything but it was really fun to see and that was an added layer to this character that I really liked and sets him apart from some of the other Rocky villains that don't have a ton going on Mr. T. so yeah I liked that a lot and I liked that the baby is deaf. That was really heartbreaking and, uh, and you know, crazy to see. It wasn't crazy, but, you know, it was just like, it. it's an additional layer to this movie that I think was a really interesting thing that uh, they could have easily, you know, that could have easily not been the case, but it's so much more interesting dramatically that it is the case. And I think that's a, that's a crazy good decision is what I meant to say. You, you know what, if, if, if someone said that there's, like, a gas leak, and that I just didn't have a carbon monoxide detector in the studio, I would, I would say, yeah, I wouldn't blame them for thinking that. I don't know what's going on with me this episode, I'm so sorry, but I hope it's entertaining, at the very least. Uh, it can make no sense, but it can at least be entertaining. Um, it's times like this where I think I need a co-host. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, mm, uh, I already talked about how I feel about the the grave visit. I was kind of kind of weird, mixed feelings about that. Uh, Bianca continues to be really good in this movie. I think it's super badass when she sings his song. You know, for that like epic hero walk to the ring that was really cool uh, yeah you know what this movie is it's good and it's it's not great but it's really good and it's a interesting way of furthering their struggles and upping the ante making it more interesting it doesn't have a super unique visual style but i do like the certain unique touches that it did bring to the table and it's 
I mean, all things considered, there are a lot of sequels much worse than this, so I'll take a I'll take a pretty good follow-up to a great movie over a bad follow-up to a great movie. So, I think this movie is is very good and well worth a watch, but I do think that Creed 1 reigns superior of the two. Real quick, before I get out of here, I would also like to touch on uh, some comics I've been reading, because I haven't talked about comics I've been reading in a while. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm sure you're probably sick of hearing me talk about Spider-Man, but two out of the three are Spider-Man, but I'll try to keep it quick. Uh, So let's start with the one that isn't Spider-Man, actually. Let's give you a little palate cleanser before we launch back into the webhead. Uh, This is Kill or Be Killed. I just finished it. Uh, it's a 20-issue series. It wrapped up, collected into four volumes. Uh, it's an image series. And written by Ed Brubaker, who I didn't realize before, but has a like quite the penchant for writing crime comics. Uh, I knew him predominantly from that award and uh, from like the Captain America stuff that he did, the Winter Soldier, and um, I'm pretty sure he wrote a lot of the stuff when when Winter Soldier became Captain America. So that's predominantly what I had known him from, and I'd read some of that. Uh, but I didn't realize until more recently, he wrote Gotham Central, which is also fantastic, uh, Criminal, and at the scene of the crime, it was like Fatal or something, something like that. Uh, he's written a lot of stuff, which I'd definitely like to check out, because this is a fantastic book. Uh, and so right away, it grabbed me, and from the first volume, I was pretty much hooked, which is one of the best compliments I can pay to a comic. And one of the second best that I can pay to a comic is that uh, the other volumes didn't lose me. Certain stuff like uh, Middle West just recently started, uh, I think about a year ago now, and it really grabbed me. Like, I was really into it, and... It was, it's written by Scotty Young, and I don't remember the artist, but he has a very interesting style. It really hooked me, and I was really into it for the first volume. And it's, uh, it's about to hit, I think issue 11 or 12, and I've since stopped reading it, because it just completely lost me almost right after that volume. So, yeah, that kind of sucked, and I'm glad that this is a series that continues its greatness throughout the whole run. That's really refreshing, because that doesn't always happen. And, uh, yeah, so it's kind of like a real-world twist on a superhero story, and it's very pulpy. It's got a really interesting art style. I apologize again, I don't remember the artist's name, but it's it's very unique, and it really does a lot to service the story. It's a it's like the perfect representation of this story like that art it just coalesces with the with the writing so well it's fantastic and uh so the basic premise is this college kid getting pretty low uh he hits a really rough patch in his life tries to kill himself he survives miraculously and when he's come he comes back he's visited by a demon and the demon tells him if you kill one person a month and, you know, like, you give them to hell, then I'll keep allowing you to live. And so, obviously, his first thought is, like, I'm, you know, you can't possibly be real. I definitely hit my head really hard. 
when I try to jump off this roof or whatever, but then the demon breaks his arm. And then it's like, okay, but then did you also break your arm and hit your head? And are you hallucinating? Uh, and then as the month draws to a close, he starts to get, like, deathly ill. And the demon keeps popping up to remind him, hey, you know, if you just killed someone, uh, you'd be fine. And so eventually he decides to start killing people who deserve it, bad people. And he, he gets really good at it. He goes on this this spree. It's He's basically the Punisher uh, but in a sweatshirt and a red mask, it's very visually striking. It's a good design. And, yeah, he becomes, like, New York's vigilante. And uh, that's pretty much all I'm going to say about it. Uh, I would say that if you're thinking that sounds pretty straightforward, there's a degree of ambiguity throughout the entire series as to whether or not the demon was really there. And it's really, really interesting, and it's a good driving force throughout the series. Through the whole thing, kind of kept bouncing back and forth between whether or not it's real or not. Because there's certain elements that would make you think it is real, and there's certain ones that make you, you know, not. It's very much open to your interpretation. And the ending plays a big part in that. Um, let's see, what else? I The writing is also fantastic, not just the dialogue. His internal monologue is also really good. I'm amazed. A lot of times, character-breaking elements, like dialogue or actions that a character does that I feel like, mm, that character wouldn't do that. It makes me uh, appreciate when a writer can create a character from the ground up and never break that character, because that takes a lot of skill, and it's it's very hard. Sometimes, even like the best characters, someone like Han Solo... Um, I know that's a totally different genre and story, but hear me out for a second. He kind of goes from being a, a scoundrel turned hero to then by Return of the Jedi, so just two movies after that arc, he's almost like a whiny child who's, you know, he's got like the emotional empathy of a middle schooler, like the way that relationship is handled, like the way he's like jealous of Luke and all that stuff and it's very weird, and he goes through this weird transformation where they sort of lose hold of his character, and he starts feeling uncharacteristic of himself. Now, certainly there's great moments in between all that, but there are a lot of moments that you're like, mm, that doesn't really ring true as Han Solo, at least from my point of view. I know I was talking about Star Wars earlier. I thought I could use that as an example because it's one that sticks out in my mind. But this is a series where I think that Brubaker never once loses handle on the character, and it always feels very consistent and the complexities of him and his life and the background he comes from and the things that he's experiencing it all seems very realistic as to how he would react and how he would process it and it's really fantastic and the realism in do is done in such a way that it maintains its realism it's got a very consistent style and certainly some of that is due to the art but there's a way that the story is structured that it it doesn't um, it's not something like the the Chris Nolan Batman trilogy, which is a great, it's a great trilogy. It's, all those movies are really, really good. Dark Knight Rises is, is okay, but even so, you know, were, were you not able to compare it to those two movies? It, you know, if they didn't exist, it would probably be hailed as one of, if not the best Batman movie to date, right? So even the weakest link is still pretty good, but, um... But those movies go a long way around from trying to ground 
Batman and make him gritty and make make everything real world and tactile and it's such a crazy heightened degree of realism but the more they try to do that the way I see it the more you highlight how weird Batman looks in that world how out of place he looks in just Chicago or Pittsburgh when there's all of a sudden this bat you, you know guy dressed up like a bat and a guy you know looking like a clown and guy with half his face missing like they just kind of don't coalesce with that world it's it's kind of weird and it's always something that's kind of jarred me but I think something like the Tim Burton Batman movies now certainly those aren't perfect films but the visual style that they have allows Batman to fit better in that world so I think that this type of realism the realism that Brubaker taps into with um with Killer Be Killed, and certainly falls more into the Tim Burton category, where everything fits in the world, the stylistic choices, and the way the characters look and act and and uh, go about this crusade. It's it all fits. It doesn't end up seeming seeming ridiculous the more it tries to seem realistic, if that makes any sense. So that's another really good aspect of this series. And then also, I think if you love Tarantino, if you love that kind of pulp, that kind of crime story, then you'll love this series. Now, a big part of that is that it takes pretty distinct stylistic um, similarities to Tarantino's stuff. There's certainly a lot of violence and, and swearing, and it does get into really dark aspects of humanity it's a very pessimistic comic it doesn't end with a very optimistic view of humanity and and people but uh but it also does the time jump thing but it does it very similar to how tarantino does it where it's not just like oh i can do this because it's cool it's like because this is genuinely the most interesting way to tell this story uh and especially when you come all the way around to the end and you realize why it's being narrated that way it just comes together so well and it's fantastic. Just as I went on, I was picking up on how this this series, the way it's written, and the way the narrator delves out information to you, uh, because the narrator is the main character. Spoilers, kind of, but it doesn't really matter uh, if you knew that going in. Uh, the way it's it's structured is just it's fantastic, and it's so entertaining, and it's more entertaining than if you would get it in a more traditional order. So I really, really like that. That was one of my favorite aspects of this comic. And and then, yeah, it, I mean, there's so many other things. I could go on forever. But those are the big things I wanted to touch on, especially assuming that you haven't read it yet. Uh, I would really recommend it. This is a, a fantastic series. And I'm so glad that it is awesome from beginning to end. All right, uh, Spider-Man time. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. I want to start with... Amazing Fantasy 16 through 18. If you're not familiar, uh, there was a comic in the 60s. I th- Yeah, it was the 60s, right? It had to be the 60s. Was it the 70s? No, it was definitely... Yeah, yeah, the 60s. The 60s. I'm so sorry. Um, it was the 60s. It was 67, I think. Yeah, it, okay, it had to be. All right, all right. Listen, I know Spider-Man, okay? I Trust me, alright? doesn't matter that I don't know what year he was created in, okay? I'm not that crazy. I'm just kidding. Uh, this is something that I actually should know. But let's just say it was 67. 
The last issue of that series, Amazing Fantasy number 15, comes out. Spider-Man. He's debuting in this. It's a pretty low-risk situa- situation because the series is ending regardless. Uh, very popular character, obviously. And Marvel responds by giving him his own solo series uh, a couple months later. That's the Amazing Spider-Man. That's uh, what picks up after Amazing Fantasy 15. But there is missed time in between the end of that story and the beginning of Amazing Spider-Man number one. So what this series does, and then it was released in the 90s, uh, it, it goes back. And it acts as if Amazing Fantasy kept going past number 15. And so it fills in the gap between those two books with Amazing Fantasy 16, 17, and 18. And now this series f- flies under a lot of radars. Uh, it's kind of hard to find and... I don't see a lot of people talking about it, but I should. It's fantastic. Hands down, one of the best Spider-Man comics I have ever read. The pathos that this gets into, the interesting moral dilemmas and the way Peter reacts to all this stuff and all the struggles he's going through, you could just make this. You could just literally make this into a a Spider-Man movie, and it would, I mean... It would maybe usurp Spider-Verse as the best Spider-Man movie ever made. This comic is fantastic. I was blown away, blown away by how crazy good the internal monologue of Peter was written. The way he's diminishing the fact that he knows he's not a hero, the way he's thinking through how he's going to dispatch these bad guys, the way he feels such intense guilt, and um, the way he plays the dichotomy between being Spider-Man and being Peter Parker, and how angry he is at the world after Uncle Ben just died. It's incredible. Like, I seriously don't know how this writer got such a good hold on Peter Parker as a character, but that's something that I wish I could do. It is, it's, it's so good. Seriously, it's so good. It's not perfect. Um, that was so weird. It sounded like, I was just like, this is amazing. This is fantastic. It's not perfect. It's kind of awkward. But I don't want to, I mean, I'm putting it up there as one of the best. Because indeed, in my opinion, it is. And trust me, take it from a guy who's written, or written, my bad, um, read. Actually, I have written some Spider-Man comics. Take it from a guy who's read and written a lot of Spider-Man comics, okay? Like, probably the greatest percentage of my entire comic collection it's it's almost definitely spider-man comics seriously this was uh this was so good like seriously this should be at the top of a lot of people's list of best spider-man stories (laughs) however (laughs) it's not perfect it's not it's not totally um flawless it is continuing on in both the art style and the writing style, that very 60s mentality of writing comics. So it's got very similar dialogue and kind of in-story in recaps of, like, the last issue and stuff. And, like, uh, it's certainly not as egregious as some of those old comics are, but it does kind of delve into that a little bit and it is kind of awkward especially from a modern perspective but it's clear that it's a stylistic decision not just like this is bad writing and so some of that could definitely be cleaned up if you were going to adapt this into something more modern but at the same time 
I really, that's a nitpick. Like, I could get past it pretty easily. And the art also is fantastic. This this whole book was so freaking good. I loved it, man. I loved it so much. And I would implore you, if you can, if you like Spider-Man, like I do, you gotta pick this book up because it's really, really good. And, uh, and, and yeah, man, this is, Jesus is so good. Uh, all right, and then, speaking of Amazing Spider-Man stories, God, I just want to ramble on about it, man. It was so good. Oh, it just makes me so happy how good this stuff was. I've been looking, uh, I've been looking for a really good Spider-Man story, like, like, just grab me, like this one did, and, uh, Amazing Span, Amazing Fantasy, 16 to 18, that was, that was definitely it. Um, okay, and then another really great Spider-Man story, not as great, I don't think, but, um, but certainly really, really good was Spider-Man Life Story. If you're unfamiliar with this series, it basically treats Spider-Man as if he aged linearly. Uh, this is kind of a general rule for all comics, but if it's a popular ongoing character, they sort of just reset the status quo every couple of years. Like, Batman, at this point, should be, like, 110 years old. Like, if you're assuming he started when he was 30, Batman's, like, 80 in, like now in terms of when he was created, so... If he aged in real time, he would, you know, he would definitely be dead by now. Uh, but but obviously, he doesn't really get that older, get that much older, because they just keep rebooting everything. Which is a very similar situation with Spider-Man and pretty much every superhero. But this series, it's a six-issue miniseries, treats it as though he aged in real time. And every issue jumps a decade, so the first one's the 60s. And then uh, through to the twenty tens, and it just wrapped up a couple of a couple of weeks ago, I think maybe two weeks now because I got it, I got the issue a little late, but um, this is really really good. This does a very similar thing that uh, that um, well, the Amazing Fantasy what I just talked about does, and it brings a lot of interesting pathos to Peter Parker as a character, uh, but at the same time. Uh, it's a little more light, it's a little more fun, and it's definitely more fantastical than those. Those are definitely more grounded, more friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. However, I think that this, if you read from Amazing Fantasy 15 to 18, and then you read this, that's a really good story. That's a solid, uh, a solid thing, like a, a solid continuity. Uh, and I don't want to get into too many details about this comic because I think that you should definitely go and read it yourself. But the, oh God, I'm I'm just I'm gonna spoil it. Skip ahead thirty seconds. It's just gonna be thirty seconds starting now. Okay, the ending of this comic, the last page. And it's him talking about his dream. Don't worry, I'm not beating myself up like I normally am. And you see the robber running past, and you see him standing there. He looks back, and there's just that one frame of him firing the web. That is the best ending to anything Spider-Man ever. Every Spider-Man story should end like this. That, the power of that frame is amazing. Oh my god. Even out of context. Just that. No words. No context. That is such a good frame. That solitary frame Oh my god. I love it. I love it so much. That's so perfect. That means 
so much to Spider-Man as a character. I loved it. God dang, that was awesome. The art is also awesome. The writing as a whole is pretty great. Dude, you gotta read this. Okay, 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 okay. Uh, what am I grateful for this time around? Because we really gotta wrap this up. It's running a lot longer than I thought it was going to. I am grateful for a whole bunch of new friends. I haven't really talked about it, but I've started a new school year, which is why this episode was like way later than I said it was going to be. And it's been starting to intensify a little bit. I've got a pretty big workload. Uh, and I still do. I did not finish all my homework before I recorded this. But um, but yeah, we got some, some new friends coming over tonight from uh, from a new school because I'm doing Votech now half the day. Uh, that's really awesome. I love being with a bunch of really cool, really similarly minded people that I can call up and be like, hey, you should come over. Uh, and I know I said that I was kind of sick. Don't worry. Don't even worry about it. Okay? I'm fine. I'm good. I'm not going to get them sick. I promise I'm not contagious. All right. Uh, I really got to sign off, man. I'm whew, I'm like, ah, I'm getting really thirsty. And this is going really long. I don't want to take up too much of your time. But you know what I do want to do? I want to thank you as always for listening. And I want to implore you to go read those Spider-Man comics. But if you don't want to do that and you're like, what should I do instead from board? Ah, uh, you could always hit me up uh, at Giovanni one on Instagram. You can hit up the show at Movies and More Pod on Instagram for updates on the new episodes, teasers for when they drop, and um, pretty much, pretty much always an actual like post for when I posted the new episode. Um, and then we can always chat about whatever you want to talk about. Movies, it could be more, it could be movies and more, whatever you want, I'm down. Uh, if you don't like Instagram or you don't have it, I totally understand. Um, you can email me at moviesandmorepod at gmail.com. That'd be a great way to get in touch with me. If you don't want to do any of that, but you love this show and you want to support it, a super easy way you could do that takes like a minute and you can do it right in the app as you can rate us five stars on wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Thanks as always for listening. Seriously, drop a comment or review if you want, and I, I hope you enjoyed Go read all those Spider-Man books and make your own legacy. Adonis Johnson Creed. Man, this episode was not good, was it?